0: Hi, I'd introduce myself, but I can't remember my name. I'm only mum now, or mummy. You know what I'm looking forward to with level two? It's not Thursday when we go there. It's Monday when the schools go back. Woohoo! <laughs> well, from one mother to another, I'm sure there are a lot of parents who are looking forward to Monday too. Kia ora, I'm Indira Stewart. Welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed your first day of Level 2. We heard all kinds of stories, big lines of shaggy-haired Kiwis outside barbers, kids getting long-delayed birthday presents from toy stores, and a lot of friends catching up at their local cafe. I haven't had a chance to get out yet myself, but I am really looking forward to catching up with my two sisters this weekend. Later this episode, our producer Sonia Sly looks at stories from foster parents during the lockdown. But first, let's get to the headlines. Yesterday was budget day, and it was a big one.
1: This is the most significant financial commitment by a New Zealand government in modern history.
0: Grant Robertson wasn't exaggerating there. The budget included $50 billion in new spending. Part of that was an extension to the wage subsidy schemes, but the rules are slightly different. Now, any businesses that can prove their revenue has dropped 50% since this time last year can access the subsidy for an extra eight weeks. It's expected to cost up to $3.2 billion, but Grant Robertson won't rule out even more money going toward the scheme.
1: Look, I think you've seen all the way through this that we've been really flexible about the kind of contributions we will make. You know, when we first started the wage subsidy scheme, it had a cap. We removed that cap. We've changed conditions as we've gone. Even with this scheme, we have brought in start-ups who weren't eligible for the original scheme. So we continue to adapt and develop, um, but we think this is a really important extension to help businesses who actually, and many of whom in the targeted sectors, are not even able to trade at this point.
0: The other big ticket items were $5 billion on the construction of social housing, an extra $3 billion for infrastructure projects, $1.6 billion towards trade training, a $1.1 billion environmental jobs package, plus billions more in spending to boost health and education. But even with all that cash accounted for, there's still $20 billion in the budget which has yet to be allocated. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says further spending will be announced as the government continues to respond to COVID-19. We know this is not the end of what we need to do. We will keep working with you. We will keep supporting workers and businesses. The budget has left some disappointed, particularly people in the tourism industry, like Matt Brady, Managing Director of Pan Pacific Travel.
1: I'm devastated, absolutely devastated, underwhelmed, We were very clear to say that if we were to see the recovery, long-term recovery of tourism, we needed certainty. And we were looking at saying, if you extend the wage subsidy to cover the core staff, the key staff, for the duration of the closure, we would have probably applauded that. We'd be given an eight-week extension.
0: But the Tourism Minister Calvin Davis points out the sector has already seen benefits from the wage subsidy and business loan schemes. He says the budget also includes $400 million to promote domestic tourism and help businesses transition to target more New Zealand and Australian
1: customers. We have to be honest that we can't uh, tie workers to jobs that will not be there in the future and businesses uh we'll have to make some more tough decisions into the future uh but what we're doing is offering advice and guidance to those who believe that they can manage uh, for a while this uh we won't have the same tourism industry that we had previously but we will have the bones of it and we'll come out stronger on the other side
0: national party leader simon bridges agrees with parts of the budget including the extension of the wage subsidy but He argues businesses needed more direct support and more freedom to operate normally.
1: We end the lockdown uh, sooner and get to a position where unless there's an incredibly good reason, people are back working because it's so much easier when jobs is one of the top issues here to keep someone in a job um, than to see them on the dole queue and then try and get them back.
0: Meanwhile, in non-budget related news, we had another day with zero new cases of COVID-19 the third in a row. And in overseas news, the head of the World Health Organization's health emergencies program, Mike Ryan, has warned COVID-19 may never go away.
1: This virus may become just
0: another endemic virus in our communities, and this virus may never go away. HIV
1: has not gone away, but we've come to terms with the virus and we have found the therapies and we've found the prevention methods and people don't feel as scared uh, as they did before and we're offering life to people with HIV, long healthy lives to people
0: with HIV uh, and I'm not comparing the two diseases but I think it is important that we be realistic and I don't think anyone can predict when or if this disease will disappear. In the US, the country's top infectious disease expert, Dr Anthony Fauci, has warned there are serious risks if state and local officials lift stay-at-home orders too quickly. The US has now recorded nearly 1.4 million cases of COVID-19 and more than 84,000 deaths. But President Donald Trump has refused to accept the Center for Disease Control's guidelines for ending the orders and is pushing states to reopen faster. Dr Fauci spoke to a Senate committee from his home where he's self-isolating after two members of the White House staff tested positive for COVID-19.
1: If some areas, cities, states, or what have you, jump over those various checkpoints and prematurely open up without having the capability of being able to respond effectively and efficiently, my concern is that we will start to see little spikes that might turn into outbreaks. So therefore, I have been being very clear in my message to try to the best extent possible to go by the guidelines, which have been very well thought out and very well delineated.
0: But President Trump has rejected Dr Fauci's words.
1: It's I was different. surprised by his answer, actually, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, it's just, to me, it's not an acceptable answer.
0: Now, our producer Sonia Sly looks at what the lockdown has meant for foster parents and the children they care for.
2: In the dark, three children aged between three and seven huddle together in a corner of a sparse room. Light peeks out between a split in the raggedy curtain joined together by two clothes pegs. These children don't have beds of their own, but sleep on sheets of cardboard in a run-done flat with one scratchy blanket to cover the three of them. The mum and dad are arguing in the lounge. Mm. A door slams. The three-year-old shuffles along the floor with a full nappy. Their bellies are hungry. A mouse runs across the floor, picking the crumbs of last night's dinner. Half a packet of biscuits that had to last a day. There are children in New Zealand who live in neglected households, where their families struggle with the emotional pressures of unemployment, drug and alcohol addiction, and where domestic violence is just part of their everyday lives. But for children who've been lucky enough to be placed in foster care, what do their lives look like now and into the future? And what are some of the challenges that foster care parents are facing at this time? What is the support that's being provided How have they coped with the lockdown?
3: we've been really fortunate in the organisation that we work in within Bernardo's that they've been really forward thinking and that was also helpful that we got some information prior to going into lockdown about what we would need. And
2: Fiona Howie is a foster care manager for Bernardo's, an agency that acts as an intermediary between foster families and Oranga Tamariki.
3: Something that we've changed that I feel that's been quite successful and something that we might continue on with is in relation to how we've managed Fano and sibling contact. Although we've always had caregivers that have supported the facilitation of contact, usually this has been led by the ministry. But because of the current situation, our caregivers have been doing this via Zoom and Skype and over the phone, sharing pictures with Fano of the children that they're caring for. In relation to this pandemic, we've had some amazing emails and people putting themselves forward to say that they've maybe considered it at one point. So we've seen a lot of that in the last few weeks, which has been really um, touching. But we always need more caregivers, especially to care for children from eight upwards and larger sibling groups so we are always looking for foster carers who are willing to be part of our Bernardos family at Bernardos we've got a really really robust assessment and training programme and I think that really sets placements up to succeed so we are really thoughtful in the matching process and the assessment process to make sure that the care family is equipped experience and experienced and skilled to care for the child that's, that they are going to be providing that day to day care for because we do have a therapeutic model based on trauma-informed care. Our caregivers are equipped to manage those challenges by the time they are approved and have a child on placement. It takes someone
2: with a pretty massive heart to give their time to providing care for a child or children whose lives need to be rebuilt again.
4: They're aged
2: four, five, five, six and seven. Well, this is Sarah and she's one of those people. Four are in a sibling group and one is on his own. Her family includes their husband, five foster children, all under the age of seven, and four biological children aged between nine and 15 years old.
4: In the first um, week or so, the children um, worried about um, dying or their family would be dying from COVID and what it was. So that was very very, uh, difficult to do when children are very young. Uh, We've been doing quite a lot of, um, of sleepovers around the house, in the sitting room, on the deck, in the garage and all sorts of places so that we're all together a bit more. Definitely extra family cuddle time. So lots and lots
2: of cuddles, lots of time. Now, as you can imagine, the demands are pretty massive. But Sarah says everyone pitches in. We're a tight crew and the older
4: ones, they help out. They're involved in all the care of the children, even down to um, changing uh, the nappies of one child who's incontinent, who has high needs. We've got this thing that no one sits down until we all sit down. So after supper, everyone clears up and we have uh, a song playing and the grace is to finish all the clearing up be- uh, before the song finishes.
2: Now of course lockdown has been a destabilising time for all of us, let alone for children who've come from backgrounds of trauma. Sarah says that over this time of uncertainty some of those underlying fears have come to the surface.
4: Yes, absolutely, and talking about their past memories of those um, times which led to them being needed to be uh, removed from those places for their own safety. We have a rule in the house about shouting, and that's a big thing when the children have talked with their social workers about what's good about this house is that we don't shout and we don't have aggression. So um, it's uh, we have uh, three house rules, and they are smile and be grateful, be kind. And we, bad tone of voice, you know, speaking badly and how that uh, makes someone feel and that fear is something we talk about as a family. We wrote down on a big piece of paper and all the children were included, right down to the four-year-old, of what does a good family look like that we don't shout and we don't argue and we all feel safe. And that's, I think, the absolute basic is what these lovely, lovely children who are in care for Most of the time, really good reasons that they're in care. They just want to be safe.
2: I mean, one thing that you mentioned over the phone as well is that you know, for these children that have that have come into your care, that it's really important that there is that structure and that the house is tidy and that there's that it is in a sense like highly organised because it provides that extra sense of security. And that's something I never would have expected to hear, actually. And that's a big thing for the
4: children, and something which we noticed is what food is in the cupboard, what's for supper, what's for lunch, especially in the early days of, um, will you be able to provide for me? Uh, mess is stressful for anyone but I think when you've been through something like that especially where perhaps that wasn't something which the parents were able to keep on top of at times it's really important to have a clean space especially your bedrooms are nice and, and welcoming and tidy and you've got clean bedding which always is a comfort a hot water bottle if it's cold the washing is done and folded and put away and just it's clean that's a very big thing for children who've been in care. And I think a lot of people have this, you know, uh, children who haven't been in care perhaps would, don't even think about it, about having food on the table or, or being safe and not hearing shouting and not having um, vermin or having you know, rubbish on the ground. So it really is just that basic um, safe, warm home where someone will um, be there if I'm sad or they'll you know, cuddle me when I need to and I'll get a hot meal and I'll be put to bed and tucked in. Um, that sort of thing is absolutely crucial. What I'd like to see more of is that focus that the child is in the centre. The foster carers, all the other agencies, MOH and everyone involved are all around the child and it feels like an equal Situation where we're all w- uh, working together, focused on this child. And the second thing is to speed things up a bit. So to get a referral for a child such as with high needs, we were 14th in line and I said to the paediatrician, oh, that's not bad for uh, particular testing. And she said, well, last year they were able to get through two. So you're looking at five years. And my mouth dropped because the support for diagnosis, specifically for Helping children who've been through trauma to express that, so counselling, therapies, horse therapy, art therapy, to help these children deal with this feeling of trauma, I think there's a lot of improvement which could be made.
2: For Sarah and her family, fostering is about something longer term.
4: We don't want them to come in the door and it be revolving and go to another foster carer, another foster carer. And when you said about what makes it worthwhile, I smiled because... um, The absolute tiny things where a child um, who's had trauma has a good day and doesn't scream or cry, that's amazing. A child who uh, perhaps hasn't had uh, many hugs, especially from a male, snuggles up to my husband or my son. And you can just see the child is is rebuilding. Uh, They've had terrible trauma. And then slowly
2: by slowly, it is a marathon, but it's worth it.
1: And my name is Richard Kerr.
2: Richard is a teacher and his wife, a GP. Together, they also have four biological children.
1: At the moment, we've got uh, two boys in our, in our care who came to us just before uh, lockdown.
2: The boys are four and seven years old and had been separated from each other for about five months.
1: All a bit of a rush with um, lockdown. To have them come back together again was quite an important thing. They were sort of bouncing off the walls. I guess there was a lot of excitement Uh, for them to be back together again. The first week they needed to have full-time supervision. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty in, in knowing what their future is and I don't think they have a clear picture from what the adults are telling them. So managing that was pretty
2: hard. And if you put yourself in their shoes, imagine trying to form those connections and bonds with adults who you might be torn away from at any given moment.
1: You do need to be emotionally attached to them because they're going to suss you up pretty quick and it won't be a successful placement if you don't sort of build some emotional connections with them. Every time they get moved around, their development goes backward. They lose all sorts of skills. The journey for these kids as they get older is so much harder. If they don't create emotional attachments, the future is bleak.
2: But Richard says he's seen changes in the boys' behaviour since their arrival in lockdown.
1: That process can take nine months for them to become more open. You know, we're seeing a lot of, lot of shift in the way that they are a lot happier. They're very engaged in the activities we provide. And the eldest boy, he was having nightmares every night. He's got a lot of trauma. You know, some of it is starting to come out. What we're noticing is that his bad dreams, while they haven't altogether stopped, they are much, much um, less than they were before.
2: Now unfortunately in New Zealand, with the rise of unemployment and spikes in domestic and child abuse, it's highly likely that there will be a greater need for more foster families to take on children whose lives are in desperate need of repair. And Richard believes that the process needs to start with educating struggling families, providing them with life skills and greater support.
1: These situations are rolling over through generations and there's nothing that's really stopping it. How do you fix a family that's broken? How do you provide that support for them? Aranga and Chamariki really are dealing with the broken kids. You know, it's it's the ambulance at the bottom of the cliffs at Tanari, isn't it?
0: Kia ora, Sonia. That's all for this episode. We'll be back with you next weekend. We really hope you all enjoy a bit more freedom for the first weekend under Level 2. Kia haumaru, kia kaha, matewa. The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me, and Dara Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Sonia Sly and Katie Gossett. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere and it's free. Just go to the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz.